This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello and welcome to Drinking Well, a podcast by Barry Brothers and Rudd with me, Barbara Drew. Today, I'm sitting down with Lizzie Rudd, our chair, to discuss sustainability, family and champagne. Lizzie, welcome. This is your first time on the podcast, is that right? Yes, it is. Thank you for having me. You've been looking forward to this for weeks, I believe. No, I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) I don't usually speak very publicly. It's not really my thing. But these are my probably my three favourite subjects, apart from dogs. Family, champagne and sustainability. We'll see if we can um, weave something about dogs in perhaps (laughs) a little bit later on. I guess before we even get started, we are recording in a beautiful space today, um, our spirits room, one of the many, many spaces we have in this frankly, rabbit warren of buildings at number three St. James's Street. And Lizzie, when you came in, your eyes lit up and you honed in on a couple of the pictures on the walls. Tell us a bit about some of the things in this room. Okay, there's lots of history in here, the spirits room, because of course, Berry Brothers, in its second hundred years, of its 325 years, was largely a whiskey business. Still, the foundation was wine, but the majority of the business was whiskey. And I look round the room here, and I can see over there, there's a photograph of my parents launching a ship with a bottle of Cutty Sark, you know, being thrown against the hull. And I don't know where that was, but they used to, my parents travelled all over the world as tremendous brand ambassadors for Cutty Sark Whiskey, which was such a success story for this company. It was a, one of the top selling scotches in the world. It was a blended scotch whiskey, which was the fashionable type of whiskey at that time. You know, single malt really wasn't a thing then. It was all about blends. It was the number one whiskey in the US for several decades. And my father was always terribly humble about it and said, well, it was just one of those things. It just happened. (laughs) We went along on the crest of a wave. I said, what, no hard work or anything like that? I think it was probably quite hard work, but they had a lot of fun as well. And I can just see over there in the corner, there's a photograph of Captain William McCoy. He was basically a smuggler in the Bahamas. And when we first launched Cutty Sark, which was innovated here at number three St. James's Street back in 1923. It was, of course, during the Prohibition years, and it was whiskey for the US market. We had to ship it to the Bahamas, where Bill McCoy would pick it up and take it, and off it went into the US through Captain Bill McCoy, and hence the phrase, the real McCoy. Incredible. 
absolutely so incredible. Yeah, there's a bit of history in here. And then a big photograph over there of the, the beautiful picture of the magnificent tall ships. 25 years, Cutty Sark sponsored the Cutty Sark tall ships races. And my father often talked about that as the thing he was most proud of, not building the best-selling scotch in the US, but sponsoring this amazing race of around all sorts of different countries that came together every year of groups of young people from all different nationalities who'd race on these ships and come together. And it was all about building international understanding. And the most important prize for the Cutty Sark tall ships races was called the Cutty Sark Trophy that my father used to present. And it wasn't for the winner of the race. It was for the ship who had contributed the most to international understanding during the races. So it might wow. be, you know, they'd had to rescue somebody else or know pull them off the mud or something like that so and he was really really proud of that and I think that's that rather represents kind of who we are as a business today that it's not just about making money and it's so much more than that that's that represents our values that's lovely that's really lovely so tell us you're for the chair of this 325 year old family-run business tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming chair what did you do before you were our chair? I'll tell you just a little snippet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I became chair in 2017 when I took over from Simon Berry. And I had sat on the board, very non-exec, for quite a few years before that. Although in, in my 20s, for about a decade, I did work in the business, which wasn't my intention at all. In fact, quite the opposite. During my formative years, I was actually quite rebellious. And the last thing in the world I wanted to do was join my family business. <laughs> and I often say that to my youngest daughter now, who for her, it's the last thing in the world she would want to do. And I said, well, that's exactly how I felt when I was your age. And look what happened to me. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I did work in the business for a decade. And then I I actually decided to go off. My children were young and I, it was the right time for me to go and spend more time with them. And I actually trained in clinical nutrition and plant medicine. You might be able to imagine my journey into where that led me into my sort of journey into sustainability and regeneration that interest in the planet and and nature and biodiversity came from very much part of my whole ethos about working with nature rather than against it. That's really, really fascinating. And something that you've been very vocal about as your time as chair is sustainability, talking about this in terms of wines and spirits and the industry as a whole. Why is sustainability so important to you and why do you think it should be important to the wider world? One of the, the things we talk about always have done here in the business is integrity as one of our key values and for me doing the right thing for the planet. Actually a big fan of or have been for many years of, of our now king and his ethos. I've always been very aligned with that. We need to look after our communities and we need to look after our planet. I think humanity, you know, we try and control everything and actually we need to work with nature, not against it. 
my training in clinical nutrition very much led me down that path and you know plant and herb medicine and some of our wine producers you know I always see with great glee when any of our the wine producers that we work with are growing medicinal herbs to make infusions to spray on their vines as medicine I think it's the same you know we we can do the same for people and have certain teas and wine (laughs) that's really fascinating isn't it that link between as you say whether it's certain plants Mm. that encourage you know Mm. sort of health or looking after that that holistic approach is very important yes and with all of those things it's it's always the medicine is the dose (laughs) yes yeah yeah yeah. the dose makes the poison doesn't it exactly yeah absolutely I mean, looking at the sustainability side, what do you think the biggest challenge facing the wine and spirits industry is at the moment? Do you think it's that sustainability angle? Is there something in particular that is really challenging or even threatening the industry? I think there are some very major challenges facing all businesses across the world these days with so much uncertainty, both economic and climatic I think for our industry, if we think ahead, and as a family business, we do think you know, long term, we think ahead. I think, yes, probably our biggest challenge will be climate change. It's all we're already seeing it. But when we talk to any of our wine producers, they all see it. They feel it. They're experiencing it. They're having to adapt to it. And wine production is one part of it. And you know, the, the climate chaos that we're seeing it's not just the warming it's the chaos it's the you know so much better than me Barbara but late frosts and summer hail and fires and you know there are so many different challenges that it must be becoming really quite stressful for some of our friends in some of the wine regions indeed and um close to home as well it's funny I um I'll get customers asking me oh but the weather's getting warmer it must be easier to make fantastic wine in the UK Mm. and the reality is that yes summers might be getting warmer but ultimately weather patterns are becoming far more variable and so you could almost set your watch by when you were going to pick your grapes when you were going to be doing pruning and so on and now you'll find that it gets very warm in February in the UK and the vines think it's summer and they start to produce buds and, you know, you get bud burst. And then at the end of April, you might get frost, hail, even snow, possibly even into early May. And so then the vines are hit by this really, really hard frost. And a couple of years ago in France, they had one of the most devastating frosts they'd had for 40 years. And, you know, it hit the UK as well. And then through the growing season, it's really hot. I mean, last year it was 40 degrees in southern England. That's absolutely crazy. And then you get thunderstorms and it's that variability and not really being able to predict it. You know, weather yeah. forecasting hasn't improved as much as perhaps we'd like it to. And all of a sudden something, your crop that you've put a year's worth of work into has been wiped out. So personally, I take yeah. my hat off to anyone yeah. who makes wine because it is um, a difficult Me undertaking. Me too. In terms of you know moving further north now, look at English sparkling. That's potentially a wonderful opportunity for this country and just seems to be on the cusp of really taking off and being really, really good. Yes. Really good quality. The amount of work that has to go into that. Yes, over a long term. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you talk about obviously a family business and thinking long-term, not just thinking about what are we going to do for the next five years, but what are we going to do for the next generation? And it seems to me that the wine industry, that's very much the approach. You have to think long-term. Vineyards really only produce their best fruit when they're 30 years old. Yes. So producers need to be thinking right now about what the weather's going to be like in 30, 40 years. What should they be planting? How should they be managing their vineyard? Which is a big ask when we can't even predict if it's going to rain tomorrow or not. Yeah. I think it's our job as Burry Brothers and Rudd to help them with that. I don't mean that in a patronising way, but to share information because we have friendships with so many wine producers all over the world and some of our producers talking about you know some of the things that they're doing to help mitigate climate change in, in the vineyard some of the practices they can put in place how to think about it also not just in the vineyard but things like glass our whole industry is grappling with glass because that represents you know we measured our carbon footprint and that represents at least 40 percent of our carbon emissions wow so how are we going to deal with that you know of course we can do recyclable and recycled glass and glass is ultimately a natural product But at the moment, it requires furnaces, Mm -hmm. which are fired up 24-7 for X number of years. And that's not good for the planet. But there's all sorts of technology and all sorts of work that we're watching very closely and actually getting involved with as well to get to green hydrogen produced glass so we can get to what we call net zero glass so that we're not doing any damage to the planet. But not doing damage to the planet ultimately is not enough. So we not only need to not damage the planet, but we need to regenerate it. So we all need to be thinking about that, you know, just being sustainable in how we operate today. That's not enough. We've got to turn it around. We've got to stop the global warming. We've, you know, with the the Paris Agreement has said, (sighs) we've got to limit global warming to no more than one and a half degrees since pre-industrial times you know we're nearly there yeah the the latest science that even just last week i think it was is saying that we're going to hit 1.5 degrees above those levels within the next decade several times that was not predicted even in recent years so it feels like it's speeding up but not wanting to be too doom and gloom there's so many actions that we can all be taking every business every every individual we can be playing our part and we can turn this around i know we're going to need technology but you know backed up by technology but how we look after the land and the people within it plays a huge part in it which takes us on to regenerative viticulture perhaps absolutely (laughs) gosh she's done her preparation yeah really fascinating as you say not just about not doing any more harm but really how can we Mm. improve things yes um so we started a very exciting partnership with the regenerative viticulture foundation last year yes we did we did tell us more precisely it's something that we would like to play our part in promoting many of our wine producers are practicing organic or biodynamic viticulture not necessarily certified that's our job as the merchant to to talk about how they produce wine and and how brilliant it is, regardless of whether it's certified or not. We talk a lot about regenerative viticulture, which follows very similar principles generally to biodynamic, um, because organic is just basically no use of 
artificial it's, chemicals and fertilizers correct me if i'm wrong on any of this no, no it's it's very interesting so yeah organic viticulture there there are very few things that you can use for Often example copper. in the vineyard mm. but as you say one of the things that you are allowed to use in organic and um, viticulture is a a mixture of copper and sulfur mm. and this is something that's been used in vineyards for decades for centuries um, it's very effective against some forms of mildew and because it is quite a, a simple mixture, it's deemed to be suitable in organic viticulture. And the reality is that if you use too much copper, particularly, it tends to build up in the soil. Mm, it's toxic. And actually, yeah, it's mm. really, really bad for, for earthworms, for microbes in the soil. And of course, if you're organic because you're really trying to reinvigorate your vineyard, then dumping large quantities of copper and sulfur, because that's the only only recourse you've got when the mildew is really bad Mm -hmm. Um, a little bit counterproductive Mm -hmm. so it's really important when discussing these types of systems whether it's organic whether it's biodynamic whether it's regenerative viticulture to sort of look at the whole picture Mm -hmm. and not just look at the label there are wonderful organic producers out there brilliant biodynamic producers and there are fantastic producers who are neither and Mm -hmm. they are still doing right by their land so it's, I think it's, it's it's nuanced isn't it absolutely. it's not we it's not black and white sadly no, not it would be a lot easier if it were <laughs> the wine world is never black and white no indeed <laughs> and that's no, what indeed. makes it so interesting but yeah I would describe very simply that regenerative agriculture or viticulture is just all about the soil it's looking after the soil and farming the soil it's looking after the microbes as a completely separate ecosystem And that also fits with my ethos of human health because it's all about the gut. If you look after the gut, then that looks after your health. It's exactly the same principle. So fascinating. And there's so much research um, that's now being done on, well, both the human gut biome, but also the soil microbiome and even how that might link into the concept of terroir, the flavours that you might ultimately get in your finished wine. These microbes in the soil are incredibly important and ultimately Mm. having a soil that is full of life Mm. and can help the vine to protect itself whether that's against more extreme weather whether it's against particular diseases which sadly are also on the increase with um, variable weather patterns Um, yeah so yeah really sort of giving it that almost boosting the immune system of the the vineyard it's exactly what it's doing yes i like that expression the other thing that i think is really interesting is that if you farm regeneratively then you're drawing carbon down from the atmosphere into the soil and keeping it into the soil whereas intensive farming is doing the opposite it releases carbon into the atmosphere and that's just so simple and obvious in so many ways and how can we help yes as as somebody in the middle absolutely it's our job to tell our customers what people are doing because I think customers are becoming more and more interested in this. They want to know where their products come from, where their wine comes from, obviously where their spirits come from as well. You know, what's been the process? Yeah. How has it been looked after? Has it looked after the planet in its journey from seed to palate? Exactly. It's the same with any, you know, agricultural product. I think we're seeing Mm. more and more people want to know where their vegetables have come from, Mm. how they were grown you know, their meat, um, sort of how the animals are treated. It's really important. And wine shouldn't be 
any different. Mm, you should yes. want to know about it yes. and understand it. The implications of that as well for building a cellar. You know, if you're thinking ahead yeah. and laying down wine now for sort of 20 years' time, you know, what will people be thinking when they, in 20 years' time, when they come to drink wine? Will they look back and go, oh my God, how was that produced? And was it done well? Yeah. Or will they go, oh, I feel a bit uncomfortable drinking that because of how it was produced? Very interesting, isn't yeah. it? The bottle that you put on the table at your dinner party yes. and your guests look at you and go, oh. Yes. Um, yeah. Oh, okay. It's attitudes change, and I do think um, this is becoming yeah mm. more and more important. Mm, definitely. Speaking of that, shall we have a little look at the bottle that you've brought along for us today? Because I think this embodies so many of these ideas. So I asked you to choose a single bottle, which I know you did have difficulty doing it, but you finally yes, narrowed I down. Did. <laughs> Very difficult to choose one wine. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what you've brought for us to taste. Or indeed one spirit. Indeed, yes. <laughs> so we have here a bottle of Le Clerc Brion Champagne, which is one of my absolute favourites. This is the Reserve Brut. We sell it for £50 a bottle, I think, it isn't is, it? Yes. Le Clerc Brion is the most wonderful champagne house. They are organic and biodynamic. And they are trailblazers. They've been organic since the 1960s, I believe, and biodynamic since the 1980s. Which in, I suppose, just to give some context, um, Champagne as a region, it makes beautiful wine, food is exquisite, but the the weather does leave something to be desired. And particularly, you know, in the 80s, if you're saying, I'm going to grow my grapes with no artificial pesticides, no fungicides, and just sort of do everything as naturally as possible, that was a real risk. Mm. You know, you you can do that in the warm climates of the Barossa Valley, but in Champagne, it's really difficult. So that shows how important this was to them that they took that risk and said, we don't care what the cost is, you know, this is the right way of doing things. Major challenge. But it's their philosophy is what I just love because it's about taking out less than you put in and trying not to control nature, but listen to it instead. Love that. They place nature in the middle of everything they do which, of course, is what we all need to be doing now. And their winemaker, Hervé Gestam, who is a remarkable man, it's his ethos and his philosophy, which is wonderful. One of the things he said was that there are 50,000 molecules in champagne and mankind has only learnt about 5,000 of them. Mm. So how can we say we know champagne? And we can say that about so many other things, where we think we have all the answers for so many things and we really don't and we need to look to nature for the answers. He very much believes that you know wine is very much a living thing and that when you taste some of the wine that he has made really get to understand that. Yeah. Shall we taste it? Shall we? Shall we? Yes, let's. And one of the wines that they produce is the the abyss. Yes. Which is laid down 60 meters under the sea, which to begin with you'd think well maybe that's a bit of a gimmick but actually it isn't it's because they really believe in what they're doing i mean one of the reasons for for aging this um the abyss cuvee under the sea you know the pressure in a bottle of wine is quite high i say this as i'm trying to elegantly open this bottle of champagne and the cork is threatening (laughs) to 
fly out and cause serious damage to this rather old building. You know, there's a huge amount of pressure in a bottle of wine. And actually, if you age... That's a good sound. If you age your champagne under the sea, you can take it down to the level where the pressure outside the bottle is equivalent to the pressure inside the bottle. Yes, so it's perfect equilibrium. And complete darkness, no oxygen, constant temperature. And he says, perhaps most importantly, an environment that's totally undisturbed by humankind, which is rather wonderful, isn't it? We're not drinking Abyss, we're drinking Reserve. And Hervé Gestin actually is, is also the consultant winemaker for Hambledon English Sparkling, who make our Berry's Own Selection English Sparkling wine, which so is delicious. That's also. really interesting. And um, why, given the, the wealth of beautiful vineyards available to him in Champagne, might he be turning his attention to England? I wonder. <laughs> why do you think, Barbara? Because, because that's, it's up and coming and it's the future. You can see the potential there. That's really interesting. And Hamilton is a special place as well. Yeah, sharing of expertise. And it's something we're seeing more of in the English wine industry, both for sparkling and for still wine, is, you know, more winemakers, whether it's from France or further afield, lending their expertise, perhaps setting up joint ventures uh, to bring their ideas to the UK, which is um, quite mm. heartwarming. It's super. So I've poured, um, I've poured the champagne out. We're using actually our very own champagne flutes which were they were designed by Simon Berry I believe along with some of our masters of wine and the flutes very important not to have a flute that's too narrow you want to have quite a lot of space for your champagne to roam around so that the flavors and aromas can really make an impression I mean the first thing that strikes me is this beautiful golden color the champagne has been aged for quite a while so it's a non-vintage champagne that means it's a blend of different years but the majority year in the wine is 2015 so we're looking at a wine that's around about eight years old and it's spent about four and a half of those years in bottle on its yeast cells developing all sorts of wonderful toasty creamy and pastry flavors it's a little bit like going into the very best bakery one that isn't too heavy on the bread but it's got a really good line of cakes there's also lots of wonderful um citrus fruit here as well and one of the joys about Hervé's wines is that there's a real freshness and a real vitality even when they are quite mature when they've been aged for a long time much longer than this and you get this lovely fresh character coming through really mouth-watering acidity but very well balanced. Hervé doesn't use very much sugar for the final dosage that's the final little drop of sugar added at the very end of the process just before um, the final cork goes in This one's only about four grams, which is very, very low by champagne Mm. standards, just enough to offset all of those wonderful citrus flavours and then the wonderful um, sort of bready character. It's really... It's beautiful, um, isn't it? Really quite delicious. Lovely. It's it's such a... That vitality really picks you up, doesn't it? It does. One of the things that I love about champagne is, you know, as a region, it has as much diversity as any other wine region in the world there are champagnes which are quite light in terms of flavor you've got really sort of full-bodied bold champagnes and you've got champagnes like this which 
have this wonderful freshness and personality, but are still, you know, very, very elegant. It's not a shouty champagne. No, um, it's not, is it? It's quite subtle. Yeah. Just really incredibly delicious. Beautiful. Incredibly beautiful. Do you have a favourite champagne of the moment? Right now, this glass that is in front of me yeah. is, uh, is tasting utterly, utterly Good. delicious. Cheers. Cheers. Gosh, this is, this is delicious. Um, Lizzie, you've spoken about sustainability and the environment and how important it is for the industry to think about this. But I always think that there are, there are three pillars of sustainability, really. So as well as the environment, we need to look at economic sustainability and social sustainability. So looking at the social sustainability angle, making sure that we have a trade that is as diverse as it could be. What do you think still needs to be done to improve diversity and equality in the wine trade? Well, I think it's changing very rapidly, actually. At Barry Brothers and Rudd here, we're actually majority female-led in the business, aren't we? And Which is still something of a rarity. It's very unusual, yes. We do quite enjoy surprising people when they come into this little corner of St. James's, which is the heart of what was traditionally a very male part of London and the wine trade, which was traditionally a very male industry. And people come in here and we say, yes, well, Berry Brothers was started by a woman back in 1698, surprise one. And then... And my grandmother, she was chair for 16 years after the World War II. Incredible. And that was incredibly unusual then. Um, and I think it was probably more because there wasn't anyone else in her <laughs> generation to do it. But I know she did a very good job, I've heard from, from people who, who knew, who are still here. And now we have a lot of women in the business. And goodness me, we do get things done. <laughs> Very quickly. Gosh, we're moving faster than I think we've probably ever moved before, um, which is very exciting. It's wonderful. Within the wider trade, I would hope, I think we do our bit here as much as we can to promote women in business by role modelling as much as we can and by talking about it and by encouraging younger women wherever we can. And yes, the the wine world is certainly changing quite quickly. There are a lot of female wine producers now moving down, being passed down to the next generation of women rather than men. Yeah, that's something that's that's really lovely to see, actually, is I've noticed there are sort of two trends in terms of grape growing and winemaking. One is the, let's say, fairly traditional wine producing regions, um, maybe some of the classic regions like Burgundy. Um, we do see a lot of daughters taking over mm. those family businesses, which yeah. is really, really fantastic. But also newer producers setting up who are women. Yeah. So I think certainly on the production side, um, yes. huge progress has been yes. made, which is really exciting. Yes. We'd like to do more on the customer side. We'd, we'd love to have more female wine collecting customers. It's something that's really enjoyable. I mean, I love collecting wine. I know I've grown up with it, but I know the, the women that I know that do collect wine and build cellars with us, 
really, really enjoy it. It only comes with one warning from me, which is be careful, it's very addictive. (laughs) (laughs) We asked our Instagram followers for questions for you, Lizzie, and I don't want to jump ahead too much. We'll cover a few of them towards the end of the episode. But one of the questions that came in was, how do we encourage more women to get involved in the world of wine? Is there more we can do? How do we get the message out there that this is a welcoming community, whether you're working, whether you're collecting, whether you're just dipping your toe in the water of tasting wine? I think we need to go out to more women and be a little more proactive, you know, and say, come on, this is really fun. Come and have a go. And actually, I'm having dinner this evening with a group of our existing female customers to ask them exactly that and see what they think about, you know, why do they collect wine with us? And what more can we do to encourage more women to come and collect wine with us? And I think sometimes it's partly just getting people through the door and to come and have a tasting or do a, a short course about wine and enjoy it. I think often women think it's a man's domain and it absolutely isn't, I promise you. (laughs) I can only concur. Exactly. You're a master of wine. Far more qualified than I am. Yeah, it would be, from my perspective, I see more and more women coming to tastings and dinners that I host really wanting to learn about some of these wonderful producers, learn about the wines, um, learn about spirits as well. We are a wine and spirits merchant and wanting to sort of start building their collections of wines. You know, I know from my own experience when I when I first applied for a job here, there was something a little nerve wracking about walking through that creaky shop door and into the front of the shop. Yes, <laughs> there's a lot of history here from yeah, can't detract from centuries that. of maildom. Yeah, <laughs> but it's Not it's, about it's sort of no. changing the history no. or completely rewriting it, no. but just how do we how do we get the message out there that some yeah. of the stereotypes are actually nonsense exactly i think we just we just keep shining a light on it and keep talking about it and one of the things we've not touched on too much and we mentioned it briefly at the start with the wonderful collection of pictures in this room and this is of course a family business and you are not the only family member within this business in fact um there's quite a few different family members spread out across all sorts of different departments does working with family make things easier or trickier in business do I have to be honest (laughs) (laughs) actually I can be totally honest sometimes it depends but we here are incredibly lucky we are two families and we get on incredibly well and I think being two families being the Berry family and the Rudd family actually helps because we sort of dilute each other and if there are any if there are any potential conflicts or difficult conversations we could invite someone from the other family to come in which was exactly how my family joined the business back in 1920 my grandfather joined because well so I'm told the main reason he was a wine expert as well but he he joined because they needed another the the two berry cousins at the time the part they were part business partners really didn't get on and so they needed somebody else 
to come and join them. That's how the Rudd family came about into Berry Brothers and became Berry Brothers and Rudd. And I hopefully we've been doing that ever since. Now the Berries get on very well and so do the Rudds. We all get on incredibly well together. And so long may it last. A question I'm sure you get asked an awful lot. Have you ever considered your legacy at Berry Brothers and Rudd um, and what you'd like it to be, knowing that you hold the reins for a short time, given the overall big picture, and then you pass them on to the next generation? Absolutely. Of course, I've thought about that. When I first took on the, the mantle, I remember feeling this huge sense of responsibility and fear and dread. <laughs> oh my goodness. And and then as I got into it and got used to it, that's now turned into a real sense of privilege and honour to have had the opportunity to have this role. I've always said that I really want Berry Bells and Rudd to be the best and most trusted fine wine and spirit merchant in the world. But I also want it to be the best merchant for the world. And the more we can do that, to do the right thing, and that's what we're working towards. But I would also like to venture into new areas, new but related. So Mm -hmm. within drinks. Tell me more. Well, I can't really say much (laughs) yet, but watch this space. We have have just made a small investment into the Cotswolds Whiskey Distillery. We have. English whiskey, which is fantastic whiskey. And there are a few other things that we'd quite like to do to just start to expand into into new areas we have to keep changing we have to change as as every business has to keep changing even just to stand still in order to stay the same the only thing that stays the same is how we do things but what we do it will change always has done over 300 years we're a completely different business now much bigger as well but completely different from how we were last century last decade even we're evolving quickly all the time don't imagine the widow born would have been thinking of her store having an outpost in Hong Kong and Tokyo, Singapore. Absolutely. Where next? Before we sat down to record with you, Lizzie, we went out to our Instagram followers and asked them whether they had any questions for you. And I was delighted by the questions that came back. Uh-oh. We won't have time to answer all of them, sadly. The first question that really caught my eye, and this goes back actually to what you were saying right at the start about ships and the Cutisark tall ships race. Is there a carbon efficient way to transport wine around the globe? Do you see us going back to sending wine around the world in ships? That is a great question. We have considered it. We have considered. Should we be shipping from Bordeaux to the UK by by sailing ship again? And I know that there is technology afoot right now, a different type of sailing ship. So not your traditional sailing ship, but ship that's powered by a type of sails. And I think as soon as that comes on board, or whether it's you know, electric ships or hydrogen-powered ships. Yeah, we'll be right in there. Fantastic. Which part of the business do you see becoming even more important in the future? Spirits. Spirits again. I think we've been very, and quite rightly so, we've been very focused on wine over the last, 
well, since since we sold the Cutty Stark brand in 2010, so over the last 13 years, we've been very focused on making the most of our wonderful wine business. But there's a huge opportunity for us to do more in spirits and focus on on collecting spirits. And, you know, a lot of our customers who collect wine are whiskey collectors or other spirit collectors. We'd like to do more in that area. And we're, we're just, just going into, delving into that now. So there's going to be a lot happening in spirits. And we'd like to major on all sorts of different whiskies from all around the world. So not just Scotch or American or Irish, the ones that, or Japanese that everyone knows about. But there are all sorts of distilleries popping up, producing amazing whiskey all over the world. We're going to specialise in the best whiskey from around the world. Do you think that this is a good solution to climate change if we can't quite get the wines that we need if wine regions are struggling with the climate we can focus on spirits where perhaps the weather is slightly less important i think it's an interesting point and it is certainly one way of mitigating the risk in the wine world but we'd never walk away from wine totally because we couldn't do that. We're on the journey with all our wine producers and we will stick with them and we'll help them as much as we possibly can. And uh, obviously we have to be careful if we're shipping spirits or wine from all around the world. But as the technology comes, I hope we'll be able to transport in a net yeah. zero carbon way. And that's what we're working towards. You mentioned glass a little earlier as well. And you said it accounts for something like 40% of the Mm. carbon footprint of a bottle of wine, which is astonishing and terrifying. You know, we focus a lot on what happens in the vineyard, but maybe not so much on the glamorous side of bottling and logistics. Would Berry Brothers and Rudd ever sell wine in a can or a different format to get around the, the difficulties of the glass bottle? I would like to know if any of our customers listen to this, would you tell us if you think we should be selling good ordinary claret in a smart... Good ordinary can. Box. No, I was thinking box probably rather than can. (laughs) But you can get really lovely boxes of wine. So maybe we could sell it side by side and see how that goes. Although they do, I think, usually have a plastic liner. They do. And plastic is, you know, not great. Anyway, that's a byproduct of fossil fuels. It's fine as long as it can be recycled. But in the end, I think the solution will be glass, but net zero glass and lighter. Yeah, there are definitely some bottles which are unnecessarily heavy. And this beautiful Leclerc Briand is understandably moderately heavy. Champagne bottles, sparkling wine bottles need to be simply because of the the pressure of the Mm. wine inside. But if it's a still wine, there's there's no reason why the bottle needs to be 900 grams a kilo. That is really unnecessary. In the meantime, we need to get to bottles being recycled not just recyclable because that's that's still new glass Mm. we need bottles to be recycled and then they can be recycled over and over again that is an interesting point i mean just because a material can be recycled doesn't mean that it is one more question before you head off what is the most memorable wine you ever drank There are quite a few, but there is one. And actually my most, I had two most memorable wines and they both come from the same chateau over a very different time period. But the one I remember 
the most was at my father's 60th birthday dinner here. And I was only invited because somebody else dropped out at the last minute. So I was a sort of last minute, oh, do you want to come? I say, yes, okay, that would be lovely. And I didn't really appreciate what we were drinking necessarily at the time because I was quite young then. We had an 1868 Chateau Lafitte. When it came out, I thought, oh, this is really, really special. I saw it and thought, gosh, I know this is really, really special. And it tasted incredible. And there was lots left over. I was with my parents the next evening and we drank the leftovers of 1868 Chateau Lafitte with sausages and mash. And I think it was even better the next day. Absolutely brilliant. (laughs) And that really was, and I, I will always remember that. It was a special occasion and marked with a very special wine that I think his father had probably bought many, many years ago and he'd had it sat in his cellars. Naturally, he died a couple of years ago, but we still have two or three bottles left somewhere, which I thought about bringing one of those today, but I didn't think my, I'd be very popular with my brothers if I cracked open a bottle of... <laughs> you and I would have a nice time. I'll forgive you, Lizzie. <laughs> it's okay. Thank you so, so much. It has been absolutely wonderful speaking with you and some really fantastic insights and very inspiring. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Drinking Well, a podcast by Berry Brothers and Rudd. If you'd like to learn more about Le Collect Bouillon, visit bbr.com slash podcast. Or if you're interested in starting your own fine wine collection with Berry Brothers and Rudd, all the information you need can be found on bbr.com slash collecting. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again for listening. I'm off to track down some 1868 Lafitte. Cheers.